Welcome back to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Paul Vigna and Michael Casey, the authors of a new book on cryptocurrency. This is Technotopia. A quick question for you freelancers out there. If you could reclaim up to 192 hours a year of your precious time, would you? If you're doing the math, 192 hours of work is two working days per month. See, our friends at FreshBooks make ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software for freelancers. And they're the architects behind this question, and for good reason. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 5 million people to deal with their paperwork. That's not enough incentive. The FreshBooks platform has been rebuilt from the ground up. They've taken simplicity and speed to an entirely new level and added powerful new features. When tax time does roll around, you'll find tidy summaries of your expense reports, your invoice details, your sales tax summaries, and a lot more. If you're a freelancer listening to this and not using FreshBooks yet, now would be the time to try it. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to my listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com tech and enter Technotopia in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hey guys, John Biggs here. Today's show is fairly interesting. I recorded this interview with Michael Casey and Paul Vigna a few weeks ago at an event that I was holding it's a fascinating look at the future of ICOs and finance. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks. So I want to do two things. I want to talk about the book in a little more detail. I also want to talk about ICOs in general for these folks. Uh, mm -hmm. You've been dealing with them at Wall Street Journal. You've been dealing with them on an ancillary level, I guess, right? Um, and what it looks like to me is that ICOs are basically the next investment vehicle for startups. There's no seed. There's no more angel. There's no more even an IPO for to a degree. What does that mean to us? But I want to know why you guys wrote this. Is this that you pivoted to the blockchain after focusing primarily on Bitcoin, or what was the? Uh, why did you write this book in particular? Uh, well, well, I mean, it, it was a bit of the history that we did touch on a little. Was that you know, it, it became the word of the moment. It's funny because blockchain is sometimes just a word. Um, and it's used wrongly often. People refer to it as an uncollectible noun, and it's a, it's a ledger. It's like saying, you know, I'm into ledger, blockchain. <laughs> um, but uh, but anyway, we saw banks were starting to explore this stuff, and then you know, I had been interested in what we were initially calling Bitcoin 2.0. We all thought it would all be built on top of Bitcoin, so it was called Bitcoin 2.0. And and some of the ideas that were also going through Ethereum were still being called Bitcoin 2.0. Smart contracts, and you know, then then all of a sudden we were learning about you know supply chain management and, and, and you know, distributed Wi-Fi systems, and 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 we had one chapter in the first book that sort of we called the, the blockchain for everything. We started just like throwing out these loose ideas, and then we realized that which we shoehorned in at the last minute. at the last minute because yeah. again things were just growing at that space, and then. Um, our editor basically, you know, it really was taking off. And every Bitcoin was like the, the price had dropped, and um, you know the banks were talking something about Bitcoin. Blythe, Blythe Masters had come out and launched their thing so, about blockchain. Sorry, and so our editor said, "Why don't you write a book about this?" And so we—that's where it went. But what we ended up doing was, I think, you know, the the Tapscots came out with their book, Blockchain Revolution, which kind of served that purpose, and and we've done a bit of that. Just we do want people to see how broad and wild the applications are. But we also thought it was very important to sort of delve into the philosophy, ask questions about what does this mean for society, 
you know, what is trust? Why is trust important? What is the design? What is the optimal design? Should it be permissionless? Should it be permissioned? And then, you know, the ICO thing suddenly took off in the middle of it, and we had to suddenly write about that. But um, yeah, I mean, it was it was an attempt to step back and say, there's a lot more to this than just a digital currency. You know, it's it's a system of managing records, which is in itself uh, a way to resolve this core trust problem. And let's let's dive into that and find out what it means. Paul, did you want to get in on that, or do I have no, another question? Answer, so, listen, Paul, I wanted to ask you how you guys cover uh, this stuff. At TechCrunch, I barely cover it. I have a token reporter thing, which is just for, for fun. I'm basically just doing a, a newsletter just to understand the whole space. How do you guys cover this, this stuff, in uh, blockchain in particular, um, and also the ICO craze, all this other stuff that's essentially changing the financial system, but maybe there's no even terminology for it uh, in the copy desk, right? Um. We cover it as well as we can, is the honest answer. Uh, right now, I, I tell you, right now, I feel like when I walk into the office every day, I feel like I'm playing a video game in which you're in one of those games where, like, things are being thrown at you, a hundred different things, and you're just trying to catch as many as you can. There are so many stories to write about right now. There are so many angles to hit. There are so many different things that that's kind of what we're doing. Is I'm really going in and I'm just trying to keep up. You know, I mean, you can't break every story. You can't have every story. You can't hit every angle. Uh, so I write as much as I can. And what's interesting is that it's at the point where there are reporters on basically every other beat that the journal has who have now had this, had this touch their beat. Mm -hmm. And they are writing things. And I'm getting, you know, questions from them. Uh, I, need to, I need some help on this. What do I do, you know? So, Part of the way we do it is is I cover what I can from my perch, and this year a lot of it ended up being Bitcoin, the price, and the ICO craze, and a lot of and I feel bad about it because I'd love to do a lot more of the sort of blockchain application stuff. I just personally haven't had the time for it. A lot of it ends up being those other reporters in different industries on other beats, and their companies are experimenting with it and. They end up, those are good stories, I wish I could have them, but they end up getting those stories. So it's really, it's, it's a lot of just trying to capture as much as you can. I will say the interesting thing is, is and you know, the journal was, we were early on it because they let us write about it early, but in the last year, it has gotten to the point where I will have editors email me in the middle of the night about stories that there's no way they were even paying attention a year ago. <laughs> yeah. So it has been a major sea change in, in our in our approach to it. He had a big story two hours ago as well. Did you see the story? Mm -mm. I was in a, I was in a cab. <laughs> we, we, can, we can touch on it when we talk about the ICO. Sure. Yeah. Is was is there ever going to be a flip? Is there ever going to be a uh, a moment when Wall Street Journal covers more crypto than not? <laughs> I'll tell you what. It felt like that flip happened in 2017. Okay. Uh, I I. Don't know if it did, but I mean, it felt like we were writing a lot of Bitcoin crypto stories. I mean, I, literally, I was writing as, as much as I could intelligently uh, and getting it out there. And, and all the other reporters in the markets group are writing it. The people who cover the options market were doing stories, the futures market, you know. Um, it's funny because a lot of this stuff that. Hello. <laughs> I think we're talking to ourselves. Uh, I, I, I don't think it 
hurt, you really got to a real flip with that. And it probably won't. I mean, let's let's be for real. I know we're all in this room, we're into it, and our, our lives kind of revolve around it. But if you go outside of this, it still is a kind of smallish click. Um, and I, you know, they're, they're not too recently, I was with some uh, a group of my parents from my son's school. And I was telling two of, the, two of the mothers, working mothers around the world, you know, what I do. And they had never heard of Bitcoin. And they said, oh, that's interesting. What is that? They had never heard of it. So, you know, no, we're not at the point where it's, you know, the Wall Street crypto. We're not there yet. <laughs> and it also, it also yeah, creates Michael. problems with the, uh, I think, and I can say this now because I've left it, but yeah. with editors who still don't get it. And um, I find that it's, it's, the amount of backstory you have to do to explain concepts within the sort of confines of this pre-existing way of thinking about the world, you know, the, the hundreds of years of this model, make people think and use terminology that, that doesn't fit this world. It's a completely different structure. When we talk about ICOs and, and this whole, are they a security, are they a product, and you know, do you have equity or not, and what are you actually investing in, it's because we're using language that doesn't apply. So trying to write for that, where you have to use all that outdated language and then back it, it's exhausting and it's actually right. frustrating because you know, you've only got 500 words and 400 words of it is taken up <laughs> with this kind of like backstory and the, oh, the thing that happened is that last paragraph. Now you're talking yeah, yeah. about, okay. It's funny, and we'll move on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I always say, I always feel like me writing about Bitcoin and that whole backup problem of having to explain terminology It'd be like if the auto reporter, every time he did a Ford story, <laughs> had to explain how the internal combustion engine works. Right. That's, what it's, exactly it's, that's right. what it's like. It's exactly and right. yeah, that gets a little bit frustrating sometimes. It does. Yeah. Coming at this from an academic viewpoint, and you're also probably talking to a lot of folks in industry, Michael. Uh, what are you seeing on that front? Is there ever going to be a flippening on that, on that side as well? Um, look, we're, we're, when we have these conversations, you try a lot of what I do is, you know, I do a lot of public speaking and I try to actually be part of that process of discovery. And I think one way to think about it is, um, you know, supply chains. So supply chains, people think, you know, there's a perfect use case for it. And it, it, it is, it's a really good use case for, for blockchain because well, I just did it, I said blockchain, it's uncountable, you see, it's, it eventually it's gets into your head. It's as, long, as long as you don't get around to using blockchain as a verb, right? So like, you know, you can just blockchain this and blockchain that. Um, it, don't laugh, it'll happen. <laughs> I've heard it, I've actually heard it. Um, but you get these, this idea that a blockchain is very useful in a supply chain setting because the problem that you're solving is, is directly related to the problem that block, blockchains tend to solve, a lack of trust but a common interest, right? We all want such and such to happen but we don't trust each other. And, and that's what a supply chain is all about. We want to sell as many Apple iPhones as we can, but the, the supplier, the downstream supplier, wants to sell high, and the, and the, and the you know, upstream supplier, oh, sorry, the upstream supplier wants to sell high, the downstream wants to buy lower. Um, and so there's a lack of trust. But when you talk to these guys, they go, yeah, I would, I, that's cool. So, so maybe if I got all of my supply chain together, uh, we would do this. And they talk about their supply chain. It's this proprietary concept. So they build a walled garden around it, and they say, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, you're part of the club, and now we're going to have this permissioned blockchain, and we're all going to sort of figure out where everything is. But they're immediately building a gatekeeping system, right? Mm -hmm. If there's a startup that comes along that's actually be able to, to, to make you know, capacitors more cheaply than the, the one that's in the club <coughs> already, is the guy who is the capacitor producer there going to let this guy have access to that data? Probably not, right? So, so they, but then if you say to them, 
you know, that's, that's all very well and you're protecting your turf if you do that. But some of you in the, in the chain are probably going to want to be able to invite this other guy in because he's, because he's cheaper. Could you do that? Well, what, how? And you just, well, you'd have a permissionless system. And you start to explain, and they don't, they don't know, they can't imagine that because it's like, what do you mean? I wouldn't know who the who's running the computer and what what the who the validator is. That doesn't sound right because this is this is proprietary data. And you're like, well, you know, it's encrypted and it's got all these different ways to, to manage it. But they um, they can't get their heads around that because it's very scary. It's giving up control, and so losing control is even if if it is. If you can show how, if you do lose control and then get to this further place where there's a more competitive environment, you'll be able to reach out so many more customers because you'll have this dynamic 3D printing type structure where you can call on uh, a pre-validated, you know, I, I, um, you know, IoT machine that can do this for you anywhere in the world, but you need a permissionless system. They'll get there, but they don't want to take that step. And, um, you know, that's, that's the challenge. But you know what? We did this with the internet, right? The, the, the first instinct of every company was to build an intranet. Yeah, oh, we'll have all of our computers linked up and you'll better share messages amongst each other, but there's no way that we would talk to the outside world. But you couldn't win. It was far more competitively advantaged to be hooked up. I think the same thing is going to happen with, with value. That's, the first step was information, the next is value, is money. This isn't about me, but the guy I bought these shoes from in Barcelona, I was in Barcelona like... This Those morning. are nice shoes. They're very nice They're shoes. Very nice, yeah. This guy sits in this little room and he makes these shoes and he's also into blockchain and Bitcoin huh. and he's trading actively. And huh. we talked about how he could create like a supply chain for himself huh. to make these shoes, but he couldn't think outside of some little cobbler in Lisbon who makes the sole and the other guy. He can't really, he can't pay these guys until the entire system is, uh, is basically switched over. So it's fascinating. That's actually very, uh, it's a great analogy. Um, Okay, so how many of you guys know what ICOs are, and how many? What's what's our what's our expertise level? We're this maybe <laughs> half. We just wandered in. Maybe half. Half. Okay. We're a little low, so you know. Yeah, raise, so raise them high. Raise them high. What we need is like a. There you go. Oh, it's a lot. It's okay, a lot. And, and who's going to do an ICO? This okay. one, one, one <laughs> Halfway. <laughs> you're, you're, you're doing an ICO. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. Uh, give us the uh, give us the uh, combustion engine version of what an ICO is. Describe it to us. I mean, it, <laughs> it, I guess the easiest way to think about it is a cross between crowdfunding and an IPO, an initial public offering. I mean, what you have is you have, for the most part, firms creating a product are also adding a, a token to that product. In a lot of cases, they want the SEC to believe that the token is part of the service and it is not a security, and because of that, they are just offering the token as its own product and they are selling it. Um, it it's pretty obvious, too, that a lot of these firms are using it to raise funds. I mean, so it's a huge open question about is this thing just a product, a digital thing that you're selling, or is it a security? Um, the thing I think is fascinating about it, uh, from a story perspective, it's unbelievably fascinating. It is absolutely great. You are essentially having a brand new kind of way for companies to raise money, just kind of come out of nowhere almost, and companies are raising almost astounding amounts of money. And it's like you said, you're in a situation where the, the old way was you start a company, you find one, you know, you, you 
beat the streets up and down, and you find one guy who believes in you who will give you $500,000, and you build a bootstrap version of your product, and you go out there and you sell it, and you find other investors, and you kind of ratchet up in this, this, stair, this stairway, and then you start you know, doing funding rounds, and you get more money, and, more, and you, you do IPO, and then you're public, and then you, you know, that's your exit strategy. That has all been compressed with an ICO. With an ICO, the ICO is the exit strategy. You are getting paid upfront before you ever make a product, before you ever sell a product, before you ever have a product. You are raising your money. You are raising your exit money. It's really, there's so much about this that has to be worked out and shaken out. Um, but it is really fascinating and it is going on. I mean, this is all happening live. It's happening in real time. This isn't like somebody came up with an idea and they, they suss it out and the SEC weighs in and, okay, we're gonna do this. No, it's happening right now. So that's kind of, you know, you might have some thoughts on this too, but that, that's kind of a, a very broad, quick and dirty way to describe it, I, I think. Can you do it in the States away. without going to jail? Uh, to be determined. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay. So far? How about well, so far? I saw a bunch so of our hands go up there that we're making ones. Yeah. Let's hope so. Um, look, I think you can. And, and, I, and I'm actually, I, I think I come at it differently than Paul. I, I, I thoroughly agree that the nature of the vast majority of these particular ICOs had all the hallmarks of a fundraising round that implied you were selling the belief that there was a security, a promise of a return, and everything else, even though it, you know, all the language is couched everywhere else. Um, but I do think it's a very, very important question to at least grapple with this ideal of, of utility. I mean, it's just because that's what's really interesting about it, right? I mean, Ether clearly serves a function. I mean, you can't, Ethereum doesn't run without Ether, right? You can't write smart contracts. You can't do that. You have to pay the gas price. And it's, you, you just literally can't participate in this incredibly inventive, collaborative enterprise that, you know, anyone's been to a, a DevCon conference or an Ethereal conference, it's just, wow, people are making things that may or may not work, but, but they should be allowed to make things and try them out, right? Well, they need Ether to do that. So Ether's a utility token. I, I just, you know, and yeah, there was an ICO with Ether, Ether as well, right? So I... And people treat it like an investment. And yeah, people do treat it like an investment, right? So the... So the the, there is the problem, right? We, we, we haven't been able to disentangle these ideas, and it might be that the laws are the problem, right? I mean, we had this Jobs Act that came along and said, oh, we're going to make it easier to crowdfund now, and you can have ways to raise equity with, with, you know, with, without having to worry about this accredited investor problem. But it doesn't work. It's expensive, it's cumbersome, and everything else. Maybe the real point here is to say, sure, it's a form of investment, but why should we actually have a nanny state that controls people and, and doesn't let them invest in this because they really like to invest in the network effect that Ethereum is, right? I, I would like to, 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 to think that I could have had a share in the internet at some point and, and actually placed a bet on Metcalfe's law, right? So that's kind of what it's all about. And, and, and disentangling that is, is something that we do for the purposes of, of, of matching a law rather than the purposes of like, you know, I've got to say we shouldn't potentially... Look, society has decided that we should protect investors from scammers. So we absolutely want regulatory structures and, and they can be self-regulatory and we want, you know, best practices and, and things like the token report and so forth, right? You want journalism, all these things to come together to build an, an ecosystem that allows us to make sensible decisions and, and calls out the scammers and catches them. That's absolutely certain. 
But having an arbitrary rule that if you have a million dollars in, in assets and $200,000 in income, you're allowed to be an investor and this other guy's not, and it varies from state to state of whether that's relevant or not. I mean, our whole discussion is about trying to fit everything into that bucket. That, that strikes me as the problem, not the, not the actual is it a security. Because these tokens are important. So one more point. I mean, these tokens, I believe, and there's a big chapter in the book about this, the, the concept of a token economy is a really powerful idea. We have now the capacity to embed into our very medium of exchange um, the governance of the community. So you can start, like Filecoin's a great example. You, it's, it's, it's a system that is there to incentivize people to provide storage and powers and others to pay for it. You, you're actually incentivizing the maintenance of this commons, this public good. Um, and if we just built different forms of money around the world that allowed us to actually sort of go about this process, we'd, we'd start running our resources far more efficiently, whether it's our Wi-Fi networks, our IoT networks, or, or even the environment itself. So I, I really worry that we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater with all this stuff, and that we, that we lose sight of what could be incredibly powerful and valuable in, in, these, in this new tokenizing idea. You had something to say, Paul. Yeah, I think, um, I, I think part of the problem with the ICO market, certainly last year, is that, and it, it's a chicken and egg problem. Did, did the ICO market take off and kind of fuel the rally, or did the rally happen and sort of fuel the ICO market? But either way, uh, a problem with it is because on, on one hand, ostensibly, it is a great thing. Look, this is an unbelievable free market advancement, and that is great. You now have you know people who want to get in these things can buy them, and people want to invest. In, you know, it's like you can play VC. That's great. I, I think the problem is that it came at a time when Bitcoin and Ethereum were going up tremendously in value, so you had people making a lot of di I, I can't say paper anymore because they're di digital profits. And didn't have a lot to do with them because, frankly, there's still not a lot that you can do with Ether. So they were sitting on all this money and they're like, oh, well, I'll, I'll throw it at this ICO and this ICO and this ICO and this ICO. And because you, this came about in such a bull market, you had people very indiscriminately investing in these, in, investing in these clearly bad projects, clearly precursor pre-built projects that did not deserve the kind of money that they've gotten. And look, God bless them, they got the money. I hope they build products and I hope they work. But the fact of the matter is if there had been a little more discretion on the part of the investors, I think you would not have the SEC right now looking so intently at this. And I do think too, I have to say, I don't think the SEC is just trying to be draconian. I think they are trying to come down. I think they're trying to figure out where the line should be drawn between encouraging this innovation, both in terms of the technology that's being created and in terms of a new way for these firms, firms to raise money and protecting investors. And I think they're trying to draw that line. And it's hard because it's never been drawn because it's an entirely new thing. But I think, personally, I think if the, if the investors in the ICO market had been a little more discerning about their investments, we would not be having some of these problems where so many of these frauds are, are cropping up. And Mike has something to say. I have, because usually when you bring a panel on, I do a lot of panel moderating, as you know, and I'm always looking to, to make sure I get a little bit of adversarial. Mm -hmm. You don't usually expect the guys who co-authored a, a book <laughs> to actually be on the opposite side of these things. But I'm, I actually generally agree with everything Paul says, but I just worry that by obsessing with 
this moralistic stuff about all oh, these silly investors they threw in. They're all big kids. Yeah. They're, 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 there's no one... These are not people... I mean, yes, there's this, this concern about some mum and pops who may have got in a later stage, but, look, the, the, the real point to me is, um, you know, all of those crazy ethereal, Ethereum projects, right, really? I mean, this is innovation. This is how innovation works. It is a crazy, messy idea process. And so I like to think of what's happened in this, this, this wild boom is that we're building social infrastructure, and uh, the, the comparison to the dot-com bubble, I think, is really interesting. The dot-com bubble um, clearly had people doing crazy things, throwing money at pets.com and everything else, right? But um, we all talk about that. We don't talk about the fact that while this was going on, there was so much capital being raised that all this fiber optic cable was laid everywhere. All this investment went into 3G mobile technology. All of these, uh, you know, data uh, server farms were built everywhere. And then we had this cheap infrastructure upon which smartphones, uh, you know, cloud computing, IoT, everything emerged out of the, the infrastructure that was built through the speculative bubble. And that's what human beings have done through history. We have these wild capital markets that create these, these sort of sources of funds, and then we build shit. Um, and so it's... It, I think what's happening this time, it's hard to get our heads around because it's different, but it's not physical infrastructure. It's code and it's social infrastructure. There is so much open source code being written right now, and it might be useless for a moment because it's sitting in some crazy Ethereum project that, you know, that people think, how is that going to work? But you know what? A year's time, some kid comes along and says, hey, I could take that idea and attach it over here, and all of a sudden he's built the next Android. Right? Which is what exactly it's expected. I just realized what a great analogy. Linux was exactly that, right? You know, and <laughs> Linux to Android. So once we lay out this infrastructure, this code, but the other part is this social infrastructure. You're building networks of collaborative ind individuals. You're building conversations like this. The, the ICO market brought people like this into this gathering, and now we're talking about how, what, what, what else is in this book? What, it, what are some of the ideas? What about distributed energy? What about supply chains? What about new voting mechanisms? What about reputation tokens? What about identity? All these fundamentally transformative ideas are emerging out of this mania. So I just feel like getting moralistic about how bad it is is, is missing the damn point, you know? So, you know, go ahead and write your... SEC articles. Why can I just spend the next hour debating this? But this is one of the few things that we vehemently we had the same debate over the over the Bitcoin bubble. Yeah, relax now. You you left you left journalism. Look at me. I'm I feel I still feel awful because I'm in journalism. But you laughed and you're relaxed and falls in the thick of it. I want to take some questions from these guys. You guys have been up here for an hour. I appreciate it sincerely. Do you guys want to ask some questions? I might get to the. The heart of everything. First one was the one that was the first one. I just I wanted uh, you to talk a little bit more about the writing process. I'm really fascinated by books that are written by two authors. I think the last point sort of showed <laughs> my fascination. I mean, did you did you write both chapters together? Can we hear your voice more in some chapters than Paul's? Uh, I mean, our, our general process for both books was. We plotted out what we wanted the book to be, what the chapters were going to be, and we just split them up. And, and I would write this, this, this. Mike would write this, this, this. We would then uh, hand the chapters back to each other. We would edit each other's work, and then we would uh, then give it to our editor. Uh, in terms of the voice, 
we kind of consciously wrote it in almost a journalistic voice, very neutral voice. So, in fact, I think our editor, I think Tim is. He said, makes it do. I mean, we have yeah. very different voices, but right. he, we do have very he, different yeah, he voices. He mushes yeah. them and he makes them somehow. Right. Yeah. To the point where, so, so the, the voice is more of a neutral, it's not my voice, it's not Mike's voice. Um, most people say they can't tell which parts we, either of us wrote, although some of our closest colleagues at the journal have said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I can tell that that's yours, and I can tell that that's yours. But so that was the general process. The idea was plot out what we want. You know, we would talk about everything we were going to write, but then we would split up the chapters and, and handle them together. And the idea was to have a very sort of neutral, journalistic, third-person voice and to not have it to be, you know, too personal like that. So it would kind of come out like that. And you need a good editor because um, yeah, you that process could be stultifying, right? You could, oh, like, kill yeah, the, sure. the joy of it. Um, and, and we don't. We have, a, we have an excellent editor, I think. And uh, it becomes still readable and enjoyable uh, because I do think we're quite different, you know. Yeah, which is a good thing, yeah, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Yeah. yeah. Guy who was drinking beer before. I know yeah, he's got a question. Yeah, I got a question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, no, I'm definitely going to purchase the book, but you mentioned that uh, a lot of things advanced since you've written the book. What has advanced since you've written the book? Uh, what has advanced since we wrote the first book? Oh, no. Is everything that's in the this book came out yesterday. Nothing is advanced. Oh, yeah. The only thing that is no, 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 the only wait. thing that has advanced since the, this book came out is that the SEC issued the, a bunch of subpoenas. The final manuscript did not go in on Monday though. It, no, there was a, quite no. a lag time between. Well, them. and I'll tell you that the this book is very different than the first manuscript we handed in. Also, right. But what has changed? I mean, there, there's so. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been the, the the markets have changed, right? So I think, funnily enough, actually. I think Bitcoin was kind of close to around, you know, was it like 8,000, I think, when we uh, closed <laughs> yeah. out? And then I was like, oh, my God, like, look how much we missed this, because it was up at 19, right? And then and the ICO market, by, no, by December, our book was entirely under wraps. You couldn't do anything with it. And, and the market was you know, just astronomically high. I think it was higher than that. I think it was by September. Yeah, yeah, it was. Because but, I remember... No, but it was, it was, it was, it was, by then it was completely... But no, no, December was when the market was at its peak, right? Right, so, right, yeah. So, so by that stage, I'm like, oh, my God, we are way... At least on that level, the prices... I mean, we've got little disclaimers in there about this because it's such a wild market. But weirdly enough, it's come all the way back to more or less where we were. There, so, there, so uh, you know, you wouldn't know. You know? There <laughs> it was, never happened. One of the last changes we made and... Uh, so we work with our editor, but then there's a copy editor. There's editors that kind of put the actual mechanics of the book together. One of the last changes we made, and it was like the last night we could make a possible change, we were debating how we could cram a reference to Bitcoin hitting 10,000. Because it was, I think it was in September that it just happened, and we, and we said, oh, my God, we got to get in 10,000 because it hit, it's a big round number. We got, and we just, I don't even, actually, to tell you the truth, I don't know if we got it in. I don't think it did. I don't think we did. Because we finally said, you know what? The price is going to change. Yeah. We can't do anything about it. So whatever the final price was, we put it in. And then by December, it was up at 20. And now publication day, it's back down around 10. But I don't know if there's been, like, what was happening in the last time? You know, I hope this doesn't mean the space is slowed down. The ICO down. thing was a big thing. Right, I don't think initially But I think that when we, when we finished, when we wrote Bitcoin the last time, then you realized all of these blockchain ideas started coming out of the woodworks. And there's, you know, R3 and these announcements from Blythe Masters. And so this sort of incredible way of hyperledger and you know every single company that was looking at supply chains none of that we were really aware of and so that felt like right. that was this big big change that we we hadn't captured i feel like in this case 
there's so much activity, but it's it's not like big new revelations when have you happened did, since. The when pandemic. you guys did the last book, that was the end of. I know this really well. That was the end of the hot uh, blockchain investment. Yeah. A lot of the cash stopped almost right. immediately. It right. did. Yeah. This yeah. was 2013, 2012, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, well that, we, when, was, when was your We book? published 2015. The book came out in January 2015. We yeah, wrote 20, it during so 2014. 2014, yeah. 2014 is when it slowed, yeah. 14 right. was a stop, right. but you had all these blockchain companies coming in and trying to trying their damnedest to make money yeah. uh, during that period that you yeah. And the other big thing, this, we were trying to finish up in 2016, was the scaling debate. Oh God, that was hard. I mean, the, the scaling debate was was big, raging big, the Bitcoin, ongoing. The Bitcoin, big yeah. big blocks versus uh, right, not, you know, right, small right. blocks debate. You guys know all about that. We could just nah, yeah, you guys know, know all that. about that. Of course you do. Jihan um, Wu was uh, presenting somewhere in the next. I think I think MIT or something. Sometime. Yeah, you're right. I wanted anyway. to go to that. Uh, right. So yeah, a lot of this one, the, the things that were changing was it was a lot of news driven stuff. You know. Uh, more questions? Yeah, guy up front. So I absolutely encourage you, because your question is on the mark, to look at the work that Christian Catalini has just uh, published out of um, MIT Sloan Management School. Um, and he, he had all these MBAs go through every single white paper, not every single one, but like literally thousands of white papers, and um, look for sort of red flags of what might be, you know, a scam or what not be. And so you know, plagiarism of, of other, other white papers, um, the, the fact that you really don't have much of a website there, uh, obviously, do you have any code at all? Do you have a GitHub at all? Do you have, you know, any, any demonstration of an attempt to try to actually write the code you know, it might be a decent indication of what you are, what universities they went to, what sort of a team they built, what is, you know, there's, and they were, you know, obviously some of this is subjective, but they did a pretty good job of coming up with a bunch of criteria that would um, define how legit it is and how isn't. I don't know that they were able to draw a conclusion as to how many are or not. I think that they were surprised to discover that there were some, a lot of genuine efforts out there, that these, this, this, that these people really do believe that they're building something. Um, and, and that this isn't trying to scam. Um, but what was just as interesting was how the market responds, right? So, you know, uh, this is a classic economics e exercise, is to see which things get priced in and what, which don't. And it, we said it was almost across the board. Once they discovered all these, these markers for scammy behaviour, um, there was clearly a massive discount that the market was giving to them. The market did seem to be, which is an interesting statement about rational markets, smart enough to pay a higher price for those that, that had these qualities to them. It doesn't mean that there wasn't the bubble and all of that, but the distinction between the two was very clear. So he's, it, it, I recommend you take a look at that. It's a treasure trove of work. And it's Christian uh, is his first name. Last name's Catalini, so C-A-T-A-L-I-N-I. Um, he's set it up something called the Crypto Economics Lab, which I think is going to be really important as well. I, I find it remarkable how few economists take an interest in this space. You know, finances and finance guys do, and lots of other industries do, but the economists, again, I think it's the blinkered 
yeah, the assumptions, they mm-hmm. can't get their heads around it. Yeah. But Christian's one of the guys that's trying to change that. So, yeah. More? Yeah. Yeah, we can stand up. We'll get you in a second. I can't see you. I figure you can't see me. We can't. We're, we're <laughs> sunk down in these comfy chairs. Mike, we met about three weeks ago. I was going to say hi. Yeah. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Good. Yeah, and it, it was, uh, Dr. T was uh, in a room full of journalists whose um, professional skepticism was, uh, it was much more in evidence than their familiarity with the material. Yes. Yeah, Mike, what do you tell ignorant journalists? <laughs> you, you, they ask good questions. I, you know, it, it, it was... I actually really enjoyed the exercise, thanks, because it was... Um, this was uh, global finance. And, and uh, the, the... You need... It, you, I think the good part about that was, like, you need to have these questions that might seem sometimes like dumb questions to be asked in the first place to be able to say, like, what are you exactly talking about? Because I don't think techies do a very good job of... of like, Patrick Byrne calls it dolphin speak. You know, there are, there are people who speak dolphin and there are people who don't speak dolphin. And if you don't speak dolphin, you can't get through. So, <laughs> so part of my job is actually as a dolphin speaker. I'm a bit of a dolphin translator. Um, so I think that the key thing is to bring it down. What are we talking about, right? What is the problem at hand? And I just get obsessed with the word trust, you know? And so I, I, that's, again, why I get excited about it because it's a problem that's been with us from the very, very beginning of, of humanity. And, and I think that once you start to just get people to think about this problem, so, you know, I, I, I like to say, um, you know, when we went from individual to tribe to settlement to village to town to city to nation state to global organizations, and we formed economic activity and coordination around that, we, um, we needed two things. We need, we need to come to this consensus. Well, we need one thing in whole, as a whole. And there were two things that went into it. That one thing is we need to reach a consensus of facts so that we can agree on what we're doing together and then sit down and damn well figure out what we want to build and make and do, right? So there are two things we need to get that consensus of facts. One is the information itself. And the second is, do we trust that information? Or do you trust the person that is delivering the information? The first part of that we've pretty much solved now. I mean, there's still a long way to go before information becomes ideal, obviously. But access to it, speed to it, we can push information around the world in milliseconds at virtually zero cost. And so we've done phenomenally well at spreading and propagating information. What we've done a terrible job of, in fact, it's gotten worse as our information has spread, is our ability to trust that information and trust the people. So the question of trust has always been with us, and we've relied on these centralized institutions to intermediate that trust for us. So once you start to think about that, we can see this is the next step in this ongoing evolution by which human beings try to build networks of exchange. And so I like to break it down to that level. And then you go, okay, wow, so how does this help us do that? And then you start talking about record keeping and the importance of a a reliable record and da-da-da-da-da. And then you move forward from that. So trying to get people to start from that level is where it it happens. Um, You know get them a, a, their heads a little bit around cryptography, but try not to get that because it's the crypto that makes it work. And then what, what, what we do in the book is we talk about the power of math. Um, you know, Because ultimately, if you want to build a, 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 a kind of an electronic cryptographic consensus system, what you're trying to do is, is make computers make like human-like decisions to say, 
yeah, I trust that. I trust you. I trust you. That subjective process is very human. How would a computer do it? computer does it through math. It says, well, if there's a hundred hundred op op uh, opportunities here of a number and, and you've delivered me one of those and you, and you keep on delivering to it, it takes, and there's a hundred possibilities and ten times in a row you've given me the number that I know it is and it has to be that, you obviously know this secret, right? It's like a zero knowledge proof, this concept like that. So, so mathematically we can start to do really funky things with crypto. We can start to build proofs. That's what proof of work is with Bitcoin. It's this, um, you know, big exercise in hunting for a number. Find a number amongst a data set of five trillion numbers. Well, to do that's going to be really hard. So if you do it, you've obviously put a lot of work into it. You've obviously been grinding that computer of yours for a long time. So you must be spending a lot of money. So you must have skin in the game. So you must be somebody that's not going to, you know, go against the record because you'd be crazy to do that. You'd lose all this money. So th that is the, that, those are the ideas around which the system works. So I think you need to sort of like break it all down into you know, ways of talking about what the elements are. Crypto is about math as a form of proof. The problem we're trying to solve is trust. It's all about trying to build networks of exchange. And this is a core human problem that we're trying to solve. And then we can talk about all the funky things that we build on top of that. Yeah, you want to do, yeah, you? Yeah. Uh, you've mentioned that you have so many ideas darting through your head. How do you choose what to write about, what companies you write about? Uh, it, it is literally just a gut thing. I mean, it's whatever catches my attention. Um, like I said, I mean, I, I, I get more pitches during the day than I could, I get more pitches than I could even what, what do I think is interesting? Uh, that's just what I try to go on, what catches my attention. And, and sometimes, sometimes some of the stories I write are things that I personally don't want to write, and my editors think it's interesting. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not a complete uh, you know, freelancer. So uh, I, it's just, it's, it's what do we think is going to tell a good story? And, and what do we think is going to illustrate what's going on in this world? Because remember, we're writing for a general audience. Uh, it's an educated audience, but it is a general audience. So it, it's, it's trying to have that in mind, and then it's just, what interests me? What, what do I think is cool? What do I like? What do, you know, so that's it. From a, from a TechCrunch <laughs> side, uh, I, don't like the, I don't like the pitch that leads with an ICO. I don't want to hear the story about the ICO. I want to hear the story about the product. Yeah. I've been doing TechCrunch for 12 years, and every single time it's always, you've got to give me some team, and you've got to give, give me some product. If you don't have either one of those, then it's not a real thing. Mm -hmm. And with the ICO stuff, it's, al it's, it's already suspect because you're either going to make $56 million in 20 seconds, which is ridiculous, or you're not going to make anything and you're going to run off and disappear or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I have no I, I have no, I have well, no Or way. make $56 million and then and disappear. And disappear, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to say, but I didn't want to be cruel. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's just what's product, product lead with product. And I, I think the same... Those for any case, no, nobody leads with, hey, I'm, I'm going to go get an equity round. Uh, and our idea is that we're going to put wings on fish. It <laughs> it's the, 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 you yeah. don't lead with that. You lead with the wings on the fish. And then maybe you talk but about But you're right. Fish. Everyone does lead with the ICO. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, that, that I totally agree with. I think it's, and it's wrong. I mean, people will tell you, we, what, somebody, I get pitched all the time to be an advisor. And, uh, <coughs> you can make all kinds of money. You could make all kinds of money. And they say, they say like, well, one was actually to be an advisor to a firm that was raising 
that was that was advising ICOs, and they said, "Look at how many successful ICOs we've had." I'm like, like "How can you possibly know whether they're successful or not? Because right. your product doesn't. You know, there's you have you got five to ten years to tell me you're successful. He obviously, he's not talking about that kind of success. So, like, you know, I don't want to be. I, was, your, I do not want to be on your board. Thank you very much. I was I was put on <laughs> as advisor multiple times. <laughs> I was just people just slammed me on as an advisor. Like I, I like I would I would say yes on LinkedIn, and then yeah. all of a sudden I'm like I'm like uh, the uh, the main advisor. Yeah, that's funny. We should probably take one more question, yeah. and then we'll go. Yeah, but you know, I just want to say one more thing. The craziest pitch I got was from a marketing firm that was pitching an ICO, but they weren't pitching the ICO; they were pitching themselves. They're like, look at our innovative marketing methods. You should write about us because we're marketing this ICO. And I thought that is meta. Met, not only is it meta, but like you're wasting your clients' money to an unbelievable degree. They're paying you to pitch the ICO, you're pitching you. Uh, it was crazy, it was ridiculous. Well, let's do one more, and then we're going to go in the back and, and we'll be around. We'll and, be and, around and, to and, answer and any questions. And if you didn't notice and you walked in there, this is when the ugly sales pitch happens. Uh, there's a book for sale, uh, and there's some very nice people back there who would love to take a little bit of your money, just a little bit. And, Are you going to sign the these book. books? And we, oh, yeah, we'll sign we them. We will sign them. I got my Sharpie. I got my Sharpie. You know, they, we will uh, sign guy, those books. Guy he was here early. Sorry, he was here early. Let's, uh, you know. uh, one more ICO question. Um, now, I would want to hear from all three of you on this. And building on the, what you said, that the market does discount those like pre-product, pre-launch projects out there. If you put yourselves in like the entrepreneur's shoes, say you have a working platform, 100,000 users, you've been building it for two years, you get an immediate lead page right now. Also have uh, venture offers. Mm. What approach do you take, or or not even take the approach and just keep on building the product? Uh, I'd like I'd love it if you could do the last, right? I mean, wouldn't it be great if you could just build and uh, and then you you basically raise money by making something really cool? And, you know, think about like if you were. I mean, let's 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 take our hat off to Satoshi, whoever he she he they, they are. Um, they. They just built this thing, put it out there, and now Satoshi, God bless him, her, it is worth a lot of money. We're going to find out from a lawsuit uh, <laughs> whether he, he, if it is he, has to hand over some of that. But, I mean, the point was, you know, regardless of that whole other, you know, <coughs> shit show, um, uh, this concept that you, you, could, you could profit as you would from the creation of, of a of what is a product. And the product in this case is a network of activity. And, and that network effect. So I'd love to see the third. Um, I, I like the idea that uh, you've, you've got this use case. Right? That's good. I feel like I'm in Shark Tank or something right now. You know? uh, <laughs> I'll offer you part, part, part 10 million. <laughs> I've talked to people who are, who are roughly in the situation you're saying who have decided not to do an ICO because they don't want the headache they don't want to deal with it. It comes with complications down the road, uh, and they do just want to build their product. But, and again, I'm just a journalist. I'm just telling stories. I'm not advising anyone what to do. Uh, I can see how you could look at this and say, oh, my God, I can raise more money than I would ever raise. But, but even beyond that, and I'm no done. strings attached. I mean, you can no just, strings well, you attached. Can say, right. You, you, People I like are caps. giving me money. I'm not giving them equity. Yeah, I'm not giving them a promise of a return. I'm giving them nothing, and I'm getting tens of millions. I, I, I can understand why people who probably shouldn't be doing these ICOs do them anyhow. It, 
But you're also focusing, once again, you're focusing on how this sort of instinct of greed takes over. You, it is well, possible. Yeah. Well, it does, but it's also possible it to put... It takes over. It doesn't always. Yeah. Uh, there, <laughs> the people, put, people put caps on them, and I think you can put a cap, and you can look upon the value of it not being the fact that you're raising enormous <coughs> amounts of money, but you're actually... It's, it's a good buffer. Because it's, 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 without equity, you are free to do things. And that's not always yeah. a bad thing. We talked about this, about how you know, ICOs would be a pretty useful, a token would be a pretty useful vehicle for a newspaper. Newspapers or news organizations are always struggling with the fact that they have to somehow balance the interest of good journalism with the interest of the shareholders, who at the end of the day are paying your bills and can shut you down if, if they don't like the stories you're writing. Or the advertisers, for that matter. You're both dependent on both those sources. And ICO is lovely. It, you know, tokens, tokens is this sort of act of faith that you're going to, like, collectively build value and move out of it together. So, I, I, you know, I, I appreciate the scepticism, the cynicism that needs to be there. Without a doubt, there are so many scams going on. But let's also just remember that there's cool things you can do with this technology, whether it is on the utility side, but also the money raising. So... The bottom line is build, 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 build. Never get away from that. Don't, don't, don't sort of think of success as money raising. Think of success as building a successful product. But if there's a way in which you can legally tap a sort of small amount of money and that gives you a buffer and then you've got this freedom to work with that, and especially if that money is attached to a token that is integrally valuable to your network, I, I, I don't want to see people stop doing that. I think it's a really powerful, interesting idea. So if it's real and you're confident and your lawyers are behind you, I'd say go for it. I've, I've always said don't raise money if you don't have to. Uh, especially for VCs, I like to see the whole industry uh, uh, burned to the ground. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great way to do it, and anything that I do next is probably going to be ICO-based. So it has to, it's, it's, it's the future, right? And I think everybody in here agrees. Uh, is this the right time? Is it the right time for you? That's something that you and your uh, your buddies have to think about. All right. Just, just make sure you give us a nice piece of the piece. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> give, 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 him a, give him shares and give him a, the scoop. Give me the story. <laughs> right. let's, let's thank these guys for coming out. And, uh... No, no. Thank you. Thank you for coming out. We appreciate it. We really, really do. I'm kidding about that. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top-secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com